0: This this talk is going to be more theological. That's what I was asked to do, and that's more my specialty. You've seen yourself a thousand times in the mirror face to face, Walker Percy observes. Yet why is it that one of the first things you do in the morning is look at your own face? Is it to remind yourself that you're still there? Or the first time you heard your voice recorded, were you embarrassed? surprised even though you've heard your voice all of your life why is it then that when you're shown a group photograph the first thing you do probably covertly is try to find yourself (laughs) don't you know what you look like one of the sad ironies of social media is that you upload hundreds if not thousands of images of yourself despite the fact that Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and Google are designed as sophisticated feedback loops so that everywhere you look, everywhere you search, you see a reflection of your own desire. The question is, in this funhouse or madhouse of self-duplicating mirrors, can you find yourself? Aquinas argues that we should not avoid the image in order to understand ourselves. On the contrary, self-knowledge is impossible without images of ourselves. Through visible things, we come to grasp the invisible. Through the senses, we arrive at what is understood by the mind. By what is better known, we can arrive at what is worth knowing. Images, Aquinas states... In his commentary on Boethius' Trinitate, he says that images are like objects to the intellectual soul because the intellect grasps images, and it grasps the intelligibility contained within them. Images help us to penetrate beyond what the senses present and proceed according to what imagination reveals, close quote. Aquinas's contemporary, the Dominican scholar, Vincent of Beauvais, wrote one of the greatest encyclopedias of human knowledge of the Middle Ages, and he called it the speculum maius, the great mirror. Vincent said that only by looking at the speculum, the mirror, can we more easily speculate and come to know ourselves. Nature as a whole, and everything within it, is a reflection of the divine. The mind itself is a sort of mirror, both friars agreed, so that by reflecting upon lower creatures, we can learn about the higher things, of which they are images. Emil Maul demonstrates in his enormously rich work, The Gothic Image, that to the classic mind, whether ancient... Medieval, whether pagan or Christian, the material world is a constant image of the spiritual world. One reason for this, Aquinas explains, is that demonstration by means of sign or effect is particularly effective. Because, he says, we can go, for instance, from the concept of animal to the concept of mind. All the world is a mirror into which we can look. And the question is, What do we see? My question for this talk is, are you a pig, are you a butterfly, or are you a man? (laughs) And if you're a man, what sort? Now, allow me to explain, because it seems to me that there are two representative polls regarding the body's role in human happiness. The first I'm going to call the muddy pig option. The body is just about everything when it comes to happiness. So we should cast aside, worry, and enjoy ourselves the way we can, in and through our bodies, the way the pig enjoys wallowing in the mud. Now, the second option I'm going to call the butterfly option. And in here, the body means nothing more than something to escape in order to enter into ultimate happiness. Whatever we experience on the surface of this life, well, one day after death, we will leave the confines of this caterpillar world and experience an entirely different kind of happiness. We will burst from our cocoon and fly through the heavens, no longer weighed down by this heavy body. Now, obviously, I'm not asking a question about your ultimate selves in a way. Otherwise, all I could expect from some of you is an oink. LAUGHTER What I mean to ask is when you consider what makes you happy and what could possibly make you happy in some ultimate and definitive sense, whatever that might mean to you, are you more like a pig or like a butterfly? Or perhaps surprisingly, you identify yourself with that familiar yet endangered creature that we call the normal human being. If you could hold up a mirror to your true self, what will you see? Part one, pigs and happiness in the body. (laughs) The muddy pig option is based on the philosophy that there is nothing but material in this world. Therefore, a sort of ethics might say that happiness must involve engaging the material world in some way that gives us a material advantage. And that's often reduced to pleasure. Neuroscientists Morton Kringelbach and Kent Berridge state that since one can conceptually distinguish between eudaimonic and hedonic states, they claim, well, too often these two states are distinct. Whereas, he says that every single scientific experiment they've attempted shows that they, in fact, are correlative. He says, in fact, eudaimonic and hedonic states empirically cohere together in happy people. Therefore, Kringlebach uh, Kringlebach and Barrage argue with an implicit materialist philosophy that the neuroscience of pleasure can be a toehold for grasping the, quote, eudaimonic brain structures of happiness, and even what they call the elusive state of happiness itself. The idea seems to be that since happiness cannot be a state of pain, nor even a merely neutral affective state, it must therefore consist either in pleasure or always be united with pleasure. Significantly, neuroscientific research indicates that all pleasures, all, whether derived from food or music, conversation with friends or good conference lectures, that they activate the hedonic brain system. We can see here there is an interaction between different centers in the brain. There's the memory and reward centers, such as the amygdala and hippocampus, represented in purple. There is the reward center, more properly speaking, such as the nucleus accumbens and the ventral posterior nucleus, and this is in red. Then there's the motivation and drive centers, the orbitofrontal cortex in green, and the executive portions of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, marked in blue. This pleasure processing system responds to rewards. And it's suffused with chemicals that when we interact with some object that we sense, soon we have pleasure. And it's activated by a cocktail of hormones that we can remember with the acronym DOS. Some are hormones, some other chemicals. Dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins. This is an illustration of serotonin. Dopamine in the D2 subtype plays a role in both learning and pair bonding. It's, released, it's, it's actually released by many forms of drugs in rewarding behaviors, such as eating or winning money. They call dopamine the addiction chemical. Oxytocin, known as the cuddle hormone, is released in intimate settings, such as nursing, when the chemical inundates the brains of both mother and child. And then there's serotonin seen here. It promotes calm, such that serotoninogenic drugs are used to help regulate depression and anxiety, among performing many other functions. And we can see here how it emerges from the rape nucleus. And it's particularly powerful there, but it actually goes up through the prefrontal cortex, our executive functioning, and it moves throughout the brain. So once we start to feel these calming effects of the chemicals, and somehow it's going to introduce itself to many of the other functions that we perform. And then there's norepinephrine and adrenaline and other neurotransmitters. And these contribute to the well-functioning of many physiological processes, including overall activation as well as pod- positive mood regulation. Now, from this body-centered perspective, we can compare say the normal healthy functioning brain with different states in which the brain is not functioning well such as depression depression neuroscience say often correlates with anhedonia the inability to feel pleasure and here we find that neural energy is often reduced when someone has depression over a long period of time And here, what we're looking at is, we can see that there's a higher protein load in the critical brain functions. And so this is going to be a pathophysiological manifestation, they say, of major depressive disorder. Quite a difference in the way the brain is functioning according to these emotive and thought states. Characteristic, also, of dementia is a reduced functioning of the brain. So we can see from right to left the healthy brain functioning versus increased dementia in which the brain is no longer globally functioning as a whole and its various parts start to disintegrate both literally and in their function as such. So those who have depression and dementia have lesser gray matter volume. They also have lesser functioning. And so if Kringelbach and his companion are correct, and happiness and pleasure are reducible or even merely correlated with pleasure, then happiness can be shown by a brain scan. It's manifested in such, because it shows that when a person feels this great amount of pleasure, well, they must somehow also be experiencing or be prepared to experience happiness. Ironically, however, what we find is that the the studies that manifest this best are the ones in which we see how drugs affect the brain. And so the acute effects of ecstasy include reduced appetite, so we don't worry about what we're eating. But we have heightened perceptions. We have stimulation of most of the brain, an elevated mood, greater energy, and so on. Now, a weaker version of the muddy pig option is what I'll call the happy pig option. Whereas a muddy pig is content to wallow in whatever strikes his fancy, a happy pig is more discriminating. It wants a complete meal. And, of course, here in Italy, that includes an antipasto, a primo, a secondo, and, of course, you have to have a contorno punctuated by an aperitivo, a vino, a digestivo. (laughs) That's A complete pig. hmm? (laughs) You see the happy pig as opposed to the muddy pig argues that a full and complete happiness, whatever that means, must involve the body. If we're missing something it's like missing the contorno or missing the vino. There's something missing from our meal. And therefore even if the body is not the only component for happiness, nevertheless it's somehow essential for happiness for humans. Aquinas voices this objection, without mentioning pigs, in the Summa Theologiae Prima Secundae Question 4, Article 5, Objection 1, which reads, The soul without the body does not have the perfection of nature, since it's naturally a part of human nature, and every part is imperfect while separated from the whole. One could grant that there is more to man than merely the body, and one could further grant that there might be some form of eternal life And still, one could make the following argument. Since the body is essential for humans as nature, and since the most complete human action seems to involve the body, therefore, complete happiness must be something that we experience in the body, or through the body, or at least with the body. Happiness without the body is like having great hunger and only eating the appetizer. Something good, but not entirely satisfying. Happiness without the body would be imperfect, and therefore only on the stage to some other happiness that's more final, more ultimate. Therefore, we cannot be completely happy without our bodies. Now, a corollary to this body essential claim about happiness is that if we had access to a person who was experiencing complete happiness, we could, in principle, provide some kind of empirical analysis of this person's state. We could provide a brain scan which would evidence the bodily components of such happiness. This brings me to the other alternative, part two, butterflies and happiness without the body. Here on this opposite pole regarding the body's role in in ultimate happiness, I refer to as the butterfly option to designate the collection of ideas that hold in one way or another that the body contributes nothing more than an obstacle to ultimate happiness. Whatever we experience on the surface of life, this position claims, one day after death, we will escape this world and experience an entirely different kind of happiness. We will burst from our cocoon, fly through the heavens, and no longer be weighed down. Now, some pre-Socratic Greek philosophers hint at this world, and they hint at its illusoriness by talking about change. Of course, Heraclitus, some argue, could be read this way, with his notion that everything is in flux, while simultaneously, under, underneath this perpetual change, there is more truly the substance of fire. More explicit in this regard, however, are more characteristically Asian philosophies. One of the most well-known illustrates this point of view as found in the writings of the Taoist Chinese philosopher Zhang Zhou. Here's his famous parable. Once Zhang Zhou dreamed he was a butterfly, a butterfly flitting and fluttering around, happy with himself and doing as he pleased, he didn't know he was Zhang Zou. Suddenly, he woke up, and there he was, solid and unmistakable Zhang Zou. But he didn't know if he were Zhang Zhou who had dreamed he was a butterfly, or a butterfly dreaming he was Zhang Zou. Between Zhang Zou and the butterfly, there must be some distinction. And this is called the transformation of things. End of the story. Scholars note that this parable bears various interpretations. It could be saying that neither the awakened Zhou nor the dream butterfly are real because they are indistinguishable from each other. They are illusions. From a more Taoist perspective, the passage could be read to imitate that what appears to be the opposite, namely that the awakened Zo and the dream butterfly are equally real manifestations of some greater reality that underlies them both, this Zo and butterfly consciousness. It seems to me, though, that these two positions are not entirely contrary or contradictory. In a certain way, they're saying the same thing. Consider this. In the story, Zo dreams that he is a butterfly. After awakening, he doesn't know if it were he or the butterfly. Notice there's a continuity in both scenes. Namely, there's a thinker and there's a dreamer who wonders about his identity. And there there are two things that we notice too. Because there is a body that looks like a human body, and then there's a butterfly body. And the one that looks like a human is called solid and unmistakable. This is a body that sleeps and wakes up, whereas the butterfly body flits and flutters around in the air. And so the implications seem to be these. First, that the senses are inadequate for helping us to understand reality. Second, the body is not an essential aspect of one's identity, an ultimate union with reality. The butterfly, not Zo, is the one who is described as happy. And third, since the senses cannot be trusted and the body is not really part of us, it may be that whatever we think of as the self, the thinking consciousness, is illusory, a dream of perhaps another dreamer. Buddhist thought more explicitly teaches these doctrines. In the Samadhiraja Sutra, it states, Know all things to be like this a mirage, a cloud castle, a dream, an apparition, without essence, but with qualities that can be seen. Without essence, but with qualities that can be seen. This sounds like some options that we've heard from other analytic philosophies, namely that there's no substance underneath the appearances. From this same world view, and with particular reference to the body, the Upanishads have the following text. The one who does not desire, the one who is without desire, free from desire, who has achieved his desire, whose desire is the self, his breaths do not depart. Being Brahman, the ultimate reality, itself, he goes to Brahman. There is a verse about it, continuing the quote. When all the desires are abandoned, then a mortal becomes immortal. He reaches Brahman in this world. As the skin of a snake might lie dead and discarded on the anthill, so this body lies. And this body, this deathless life, is nothing but splendor, nothing but rotten. Here, the body is seen as something to slough off, like the snake sloughs off the skin. And ultimate happiness is not related to the body as such, or the body is merely an obstacle, or perhaps a stage upon an upward journey to a deeper reality. As Robert Wright states, one of the most famous delusions in all of Buddhism is the illusion of the self, and freedom from the self is the ultimate liberation. Now, my little version of this butterfly view world is what I call the flutter mind world. In the flutter mind, people hold that the world exists in some way, but it's a distraction, and we must get beyond it if we are to truly be happy. For the flutter mind, material things, well, they cause our attention to flit about from one ephemeral flower to another, instead of flying free in the eternal reality beyond all essences. Hence, the body is only not essential to our ultimate happiness, but is somehow a cocoon from which we must escape in order to have truly spiritual thoughts. Sometimes even the very term spirituality seems to imply that we need to get beyond physicality. Aquinas voices an objection similar to this in the following way. Perfection of the body is a bodily good, but happiness does not consist in bodily goods. Therefore, no perfect disposition of the body is necessary for man's happiness. Although the butterfly and fluttermind positions discount the importance of the body for ultimate happiness, versions of this, interestingly enough, reference neuroscience in order to substantiate their claims. Studies of Buddhist monks meditating have shown that they can significantly alter not only their experience, but also their very brain structure. Through the meditation, they can alter even the weight of their brain. By thinking more, they actually increase the gray matter. It's the opposite of having depression. One study tested how subjects would respond to a pain stimulus with no help, and then to a pain stimulus while paying attention to their breath, and then to a pain stimulus after a brief session in which they were trained in Buddhist meditation. The results are remarkable. We can see that the pre-training And in the post-training, the one on the furthest left, we can see there how meditation was able to get them to feel less pain. The unpleasantness rating, both in terms of intensity and in the unpleasantness itself, was much reduced simply by meditating on something else. An MRI of a similar study shows that the pain was localized in this small region of the anterior cingulate cortex, whereas meditation modulated the pain both in that location, and meditation started to encompass the rest of the brain, such that it calmed the brain also in parts of the prefrontal cortex, as well as other regions on a greater scale. So what we find then is that meditation has this effective power over the brain And I believe one of the reasons why is because ultimately what meditation does, you can see in this slide how the attention area during meditation increases. So it's a manifestation of how the mind is focusing on a single thing, which means in Aquinas' terms, to focus on one thing means that you exclude other things. It really is a one or zero proposition when it comes to our attention. We can't pay attention to all things unless we consider them under the same respect. So for instance, I can consider everyone as a crowd as such, but the more that I focus on one individual person, the less I actually see others in my peripheral vision. So the attention increases in meditation on one thing, and it decreases attention to, say, the pain. And here we notice that this is the corollary, because notice the orientation area of the brain on the the baseline. It's rather large. It's functioning along with the rest of the brain. And then in meditation, the body's own physical orientation, its sense of self and place with respect to a location, that decreases. Now, what we notice then is that if this is the case, does this prove that meditation truly is what makes us happy? There are a number of steps that need to be made before we can come to those conclusions as these scientists supposedly have come to. It's one thing to say that meditation increases attention on one thing and decreases pain or anxiety or bodily orientation or sense of one's body in general. But it's an entirely different proposition to argue that meditation is essential for happiness. Because that's a philosophical claim as to what constitutes happiness. Perhaps we can say that happiness and serenity go along together. But we have to argue that escape from the body or calming it by meditation is truly the beginning of one's union with ultimate reality. The reality of unbounded perfection. So I'm not quite sure if we can get there on this level. Which leads us to the third part which is a question of agents and ends. In order to understand the body's role in ultimate happiness, Aquinas argues from a very different kind of level. He starts with an empirical investigation, in a way, by considering what human beings do. He says that in order to understand ultimate happiness for human beings, we have to understand what is a human being. And to understand that, we have to consider what are the sorts of things that human beings do which is characteristic to them as a species. And in order to understand that, well, we just have to look at what agents are up to and how that relates to their own self directedness. Aquinas' reasoning begins with what is observable about living things that act in the world. Agents, he says, produce specific effects. Pigs roll in mud. Butterflies emerge from cocoons. Humans talk with friends. These are not random events, but the end product of some ordered series of causes. We don't find butterflies rolling around in the mud, and we don't find pigs emerging from cocoons. Now, if things were truly random, if there were no causality, if, if teleology did not exist at all, well, there'd be no predictability. Even more, there'd be no way to talk about human action, and there'd be no way to identify the difference between, say, mud rolling, cocoon escaping, or helping a person who has a headache with medicine, and the difference between that and this. (laughs) Maybe they're both ways equally to resolve a headache. (laughs) (laughs) So there has to be a way to distinguish among self-directed actions with respect to their ends and to say what is proper to the creature as such with respect to its nature. For some natures, to have an axe come down upon the neck, it's rather inconvenient for that nature. And therefore, if we deny the differences among acts and their ends, not only will we have real problems discussing the differences between things, we will end up denying the law of non-contradiction altogether. All that would exist would be a mixed-up muck of random flux, prime matter, without form, and void of intelligibility. Without being too, I, I can't explore here the metaphysical or theological arguments for ontological stability or the teleology of all things. Here I'm just proceeding on the assumption, which I hope is reasonable, that pigs and butterflies are different, that they have characteristic behaviors, and therefore they can serve as symbols or models that represent opposite ends of a spectrum that explains human happiness, as opposed to what makes us unhappy. And it can help us to see what is essentially bodily or essentially non-bodily. So Aquinas, he points out that agents, as I've said, act for an end. And acting for an end, he says, means acting for something good. End and good are correlative. Everything good is, it, it can be desired as an end. And every end is desired because an agent perceives it as good in some way. In that light, we can consider three elements in a non-random choice for some end. There is the agent who desires some good end. There is the benefit that he desires. And then there is the union between the agent and the good. Notice that each element in this series is good. We can say that the agent is the end for which a good is good. And we can also say that the end by which a good is good, this is the union between the agent and the thing that he desires. And then finally, there's the end to which the agent primarily directs himself. This is what we call the good in itself. And there's going to be a natural ordering among these ends. The agent, as the subject which is perfected, is the primary efficient cause. It's through his self-moving will that he obtains some good in question. And the end to which an agent directs himself, well, this is the good desired in itself. This is the final cause, in Aristotelian terms, of the agent's movement. And then finally, there's this middle category, the end by which the good is achieved, the union of the beneficiary and the benefit. And we can say that this also is an end. You see, because each one can be desired, but one is desired for the sake of the other. So let's take a look at our previous examples. Here we have the end for which. Well, that's the pig. And the end to which the pig aims is happiness in some way, understood as a pleasant feeling. The end by which the feeling comes about is mud, mud. Or more properly, the pig's act of wallowing in the mud. And then we have the end for which here is the butterfly. The end to which the butterfly aims is happiness, understood as entrance into ultimate reality, escaping the cocoon. The end by which this feeling comes about, well, that is its transformation from being a caterpillar to becoming this new creature that is separate from its former self. Now let's consider... Human beings, And the example that I'd like to give is through this analysis of this illustration. Here we see that there's a sick person in a bed and awake. At the foot of the bed is a physician with some kind of potion or medicine, making a gesture as if to say, you should take this. Near the bedridden man is a woman, perhaps his wife. She has her hand up as if to say, my husband's not taking that medicine. <laughs> well. Well, why? Because it's only an apparent good. It's not an end, she thinks, that will lead to her husband's health. It's a concoction cooked up by a quack. Put more formally, we might say, the sick man desires health. That is the good to which he is primarily directed. The good that is the final cause, the object of the beneficiary's desire. The good in itself to which he and his wife are directed in this situation. She's a good wife. As the terminus of the teleological tendency, this good moves them to seek the doctor, provides a measure by which compounds are judged as useful or harmful. The sick man also desires to be healthy. That is, he desires the good by which he is healthy. Health is not some substantial good abstract from his own desires. Rather, he desires union with the medicine such that it perfects him as an acting subject who chooses it. Consequently, he desires whatever means will help him to achieve the restoration of health and the continuous state of a well-functioning body. Now, by the rhetorical move of synecdoche, we can say that he desires medicine. But more properly, it's that he desires union with the good. And then finally, in a tertiary way, the sick man, well, he has himself as the object of desire. Obviously, he wills medicine for himself, not for his wife, because he's the sick one. He is the acted subject who is perfected. He is the one for which this good is good in this moment. And therefore, we can say, well, his end is himself, but only insofar as this object, that's the good thing that he wants for this thing that lacks the good. Notice that the end then is desired, and union with the end is desired as well, but in a secondary way. So union is union with something. It's a good in itself, only insofar as truly it's a good as a step along the way to something else. And so as a, as a good to which we primarily direct ourselves, that is the good of our primary desire. This means that there's a natural order among the ends, just to belabor the point. Now, if we consider this with respect to, say, what uh, pig's desire. I found a, um, an article, Porcine Regulation of Homeostasis and Cognitive Bias, a Cross-Species Analysis. Actually, I, I mostly made it up, but... <laughs> It illustrates, and the two footnotes are real, um, one of this which does deal with cognitive uh, biases in pigs. But notice here in this uh, imaginative example, we can say that the Berkshire species of pig, um, when compared to does it desire mud, so 10 out of 10 desired mud of the Berkshire species, and 10 out of 10 desired vegetables. But when they were shown images of Mandelbrot sets, if you've ever seen those, it's one of these. A Mandelbrot set is a mathematical it's a map, basically, you can illustrate an almost infinite degree of how numbers relate to one another, and you can always go deeper into the set. So, when the Berkshire pig was shown the Mandelbrot set, um, they kind of sniffed at it, so they gave it 0.5. <laughs> um, the Chester White species of pig, well, 10 of them wanted uh, mud, and 10 of them wanted vegetables, and um, two of them sniffed at it, so we gave them a couple points. The wild boar, all of them wanted mud, um, only nine of them wanted. Vegetables. Perhaps they weren't hungry that day. And notice the human child all the way on the left. Um, they also wanted the mud. Um, only two of them wanted vegetables. <laughs> that was because mother told them to. But look how many were interested in the Mandelbrot set, that when they saw this mathematical equation illustrated, they were fascinated by it. And this brings us to consider, what are the ends... ...to which humans are directed. Consider the things that we desire. Following Bernard Lonergan, Robert Spitzer, SJ, observes that we have both an awareness of the realized and unrealized possibilities of the whole of reality. That is, we grasp in various ways not only that there might be mud to wallow in or vegetables to eat, but that there's some existing reality as a whole and in its parts that bears possibilities of intelligibility. We can come to know it, and it exists in a certain way beyond our imagination. We also have an awareness that this intelligibility is something that we can approach through our own minds. And so this dual awareness, it starts to develop into actual knowledge and to have insight into the reality that we know exists. We desire unrestricted, universal, complete knowledge and understanding of reality, such that our minds are expanded to the length and breadth of the universe without horizon. We also have a desire for perfect and unconditional love, without restrictions, without selfishness. Not only do we have the power to love, to recognize another, to give ourselves as a gift, but well, we also have this desire, in some way, a sense, to see that this ought to be perfect. And this is why we're disappointed in people. Because when they don't reach our, our own expectations of love and perfection, when we get to know them better and we see that there's imperfections within them, we start to wonder, well, where is this desire for love and where will it be fulfilled? We also desire perfect goodness without evil. We have a sense of good and evil. We have a capacity for moral reflection. We have a sense of negative cooperation with evil, a sense of guilt. We have a sense of positive cooperation with good, a sense of nobility. And so what we start to see, though, is that we have an almost infinite ability to recognize imperfection in the world. No matter what we come across, we can always complain about it. And this shows us that we have implicitly a sense of the infinite goodness to which we compare all these comparatively imperfect goodnesses. Now, what this means is that we desire perfect truth, perfect love, perfect goodness. And so these objects to which we direct our energies and efforts must somehow themselves, or perhaps all in one thing, be infinite. And so here I can't provide a complete proof, but I'll simply state that these desires indeed do converge in a single source, the cause of all truth, of all love, of all goodness, namely that which is good in itself and participates in nothing, that which is causeless, that which is the good of all goods, which is uncaused, which is substantial, which is living. This is the most perfect thing without defect because it is the fullness of being. It is the source of all perfection which nothing can improve. So we do not find in this infinite good any darkness. And we cannot find this infinite good within ourselves. That's why we go outside of ourselves to look for it. It's somehow extrinsic to ourselves, and yet it's bound up with our own being. This is nothing other than God. The highest good, the most perfect truth, personal love. Accordingly, if we don't always have explicit knowledge of our desires, and if we don't know that they converge upon God, nevertheless, he remains the ultimate objective good, and therefore the goal of everything in the universe. Aquinas says in the Summa Contra Gentilis the following, by the fact that things tend to their own perfection, they tend to the good, since a, a thing is good to the extent that it is perfect. Moreover, by virtue of tending to be good, it tends to the divine likeness, for a thing is made like unto God insofar as it is good. And this or that particular good becomes an object of desire as it participates in divine goodness. And therefore, by tending towards own good, it tends to the divine likeness, and therefore all things desire, at least implicitly, The divine likeness as the ultimate end. So we notice that God, as the ultimate end, can be considered in Himself the supreme good, but we can also consider Him insofar as He is participatable. The angelic doctor says that since the divine goodness is infinite, it can be participated in in infinite ways. And he goes on to say, Indeed, the divine essence exceeds all creatures, and therefore it can be taken as the proper ratio of everything according to the diverse ways in which it is participated in or imitated by creatures. And so this is God as participatable, the supreme good that beatifies human beings. Granted, then, that humans are objectively ordered to God as their ultimate final end, we may also consider what human desires tell us about the nature of human beings. Because then we'll come to see what is the end for which this ultimate good is truly good. Now, I've already pointed out that we have these desires for the infinite. I would also like to notice, though, that we are not only directed towards some infinite good, but also we have a kind of a finitude of our desires. Sometimes we desire the infinite. It seems as if sometimes, or somehow through these finite things, we are bound up with the infinite. And so we have infinitely material desires. Foods ever more rich, more rare, more exotic. You know, there's a pudding made from the finest Belgian chocolate. has gold leaf and caviar. It's served on an edible replica of the Fabergé egg. It's only $34,000. <laughs> or think about the desire for infinite material good experiences, ever more risky, more complex, more ridiculous. Underwater hotels, climbing a frozen Canadian waterfall, (laughs) base jumping, jumping from the high point with only a parachute to catch us as we land. And then there's drugs, more powerful, more addictive. Beyond crystal meth or heroin or cocaine, there's scopolamine, one gram of which can kill 20 people Or there's crocodile made in Russia from ingredients such as painkillers, iodine, lighter fluid, and cleaning agents. And there are other more bizarre, disturbing, frightful, and even demonic deviances from the man-woman conjugal union that we see in this world, or I hope we avoid, that would have satisfied the most corrupt Romans and their pagan desires to wallow in every sensuality that imagination can devise. Now, with all of these piggish efforts to drown ourselves in the mud, nevertheless, nevertheless, from time to time, we arise from the muck, and we come up for air, and we catch a glimpse of the starry night. And so the human being, then, is something of a paradox, because we desire to rise to the infinite, but we're tied down by our finitude. And at the same time, we desire sometimes to go to the depths of the finite, but we're held up by our infinite tendencies. What is this creature for which we desire the good? St. Antoninus, he invites us to ask along with the greatest thinkers, what is a human? A little world, a microcosm, dust that's blown about by a material wind, of great dignity but somehow fragile and subject to the storms of life? Is the human nothing more than a featherless biped? An animal that laughs? Apes that think too much of themselves? Or perhaps we can just follow Aristotle and say that he is a hylomorphic rational animal. He incorporates both the superior formative power called the soul as well as this material structure which is molded by this form and designated as the body. So the end to which humans are primarily directed and the end for which we desire, this helps us to see in recognizing both God and man that the end of man, first of all, is God, and then only in a tertiary way is it the human person. And then we can see where the body fits into this desire. So now let's consider the end by which the good is achieved. And here I'm going to go very quickly, because the eschatology of the beatific vision could trap us in all sorts of questions about angelic knowledge and human knowledge. But here I'll simply note that beatitude itself must respond to what is more properly human. And so, although it's been disagreed with, uh, even in, in this lecture series, According to Aquinas, he would say that union with God, first of all, happens through the soul. That although on the level of the body, we have a union with God insofar as he exercises his power, insofar as we exercise our powers of knowledge and love, we have to come to God through our effort. Now this effort is going to be graced insofar as God brings about the movement within our soul freely. And so he makes us both capable of experiencing himself, of knowing him by faith, and once faith passes away, of seeing him face to face. And so this beatitude, this union of God and man, is something that occurs primarily in the mind because it is only through the spiritual soul that we come to know an essence that is beyond all material essences. Only through our access to what is spiritual, to what is beyond the body, can we have access to what is infinite and entirely non-material. And so formally then, we can say that that beatitude, happiness of man, is union with God. And materially, not in a physical sense, but understood formaliter or materialiter, the beatitude occurs through an infused divine species that itself is a participation in God. Because there's nothing visible that we can see, there's no no material that will unite us with the divine essence directly. Because the human mind thinks through by means of species that we appropriate through the senses, well, in order to have the proper understanding of God, he has to infuse within us species of himself or these phantasia that we've heard about on the material level. And now God infuses these into the souls directly So it shows us an image of himself in our mind. The human mind becomes a mirror in which God is reflected in the highest manner. So then, according to Aquinas, the soul having its own independent operation from the body, the soul does not require the body for its existence as the form it exists and gives existence to the body. Therefore, as such, the soul can then exist even without the body even though it's an unnatural existence. Knowing and willing union with God can occur then in the spiritual way without the body. And in fact, we can say that as this material world is presented to us, and particularly as it's disordered disorder on account of sin, well, it does indeed present obstacles to our contemplation. And in order to fully be united with God, well, we have to go beyond this these obstacles, in order to see God in himself. And so this leads us then to consider how it is that the beatific vision responds to, on the one hand, our ultimate desires because it's union with God, it's union with what is entirely good, what is entirely true. It actuates the highest level of infinite love, and this happens without the body. And yet, nevertheless we desire and in some way we have this longing to be united with our body so how then can we have perfect happiness with God and yet somehow desire union with the body it would seem as if we don't need the body at all right we can be the butterfly and escape well Aquinas would say that we desire the body for a few reasons one is in order to imitate Christ Just as Christ was fully God and fully man, and in order to manifest his Godhead, he not only died for our sins, he also rose from the dead, manifesting that God was united with every part of the human person. And so we can say that the divine person now, united with the human nature, manifests the goodness of human nature. And so part of our goal is to to mirror Christ's own resurrection. But there's more than that, because out of love for our own body, Aquinas asks the question, can a man love himself? And he says, well, of course. And by revelation, you know, Christ says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so clearly, in order to love our neighbor in some way, we also have to have self-love. And then he goes on to say, but can you have charity for your body? And his answer is, well, yes, because we can love not only the whole, we can love each part. And therefore, charity means the desire for the good of this object. And therefore, we can actually desire the good of our body. And what's the highest good of our body? It's to be united with God. And therefore, the desire of the soul that is before the resurrection, entirely beatified by God with this beatific vision, it desires union with the body, not because it lacks something, but rather as it overflows into the body. How does God desire any of us to be in heaven? This is the best way for us to think about it. Because again, we, what we're doing is we're always thinking about the, the spiritual soul as if it's us, and we think, well, I would want my body. Well, no, we have to think the other way around, because now this, this soul, perfectly united with God, perfectly happy, it's going to have the desires the way God has desires. Now, why, why does God desire the saints? Why does He desire anything to be in heaven? Not from a lack? He's perfect, He desires it out of overflowing charity. He desires it for our good, not for his lack. All of God's desires are desires of abundance rather than desires of need. And therefore, the desire of the soul for the body isn't a desire coming from abundance. It desires to overcome and to be united once again with its corporeal material, so that as a unified creature, it can give glory to God, and that's good for the body, and that, in a way, is good for the soul. It allows the soul to be once more enacted in everywhere possible in a human and then in divine, divinized mode. So this movement, this ecstasy, this desire for the resurrection, manifests God's providence for the world, and His desire to show us just what truly is good for us and also that god can operate on all levels of creation. And so it may be true and we certainly would admit that in a certain way those who are resurrected they have their full bodies well we could do a brain scan and we could analyze what does the beatific vision do to the brain and how does it affect it how does it activate all of our senses and how is How is the brain united with these divine species? And how are these moving it in order to glorify God through all the senses? That's all possible. But I suspect that we'd have other things to do. (laughs) More beautiful things to look at. Thank you.
1: by what he said that in order to get that link between the human person and God, the soul is required. And I got the impression that the body is not at all required or that the body can be an obstacle. <laughs> the title of you all, it offers a goal of the body in and we are not just being here. Let's make sure about that. But the question comes, is: the body really an obstacle? Because if it is an obstacle, and we have to use our body, because how is the soul going to know God if it doesn't use the body to all the fantasy and the fantasms and everything that we get for our knowledge? But if the body is an obstacle, then you are spiritually emphasizing something that you mentioned in the Upanishads, where the person lives his life because he sees the body as a body of the ego. <laughs> that the whole purpose of Upanishads is to remove the ego from my life, so that ultimately I get that, what we call the education for them, that you are absolutely united with God. So, I would like to know what you would think about this aspect of the body. How we can use the body while we adhere in order to a built and
0: a new Excellent question. And I would say, first of all, that there's a question of whether the body as it exists now, under the corruption of personal and original sin, how does that provide an obstacle? And then there's the other question of whether the body as such, naturally existing in you know some state aside from sin, how does that relate to God? But we can say that, first of all, that because we're material and God is entirely spiritual, that we can never reach God directly through the body. Rather, what we do is by looking at the natural world and we come to recognize how it reflects the divine goodness, then we can see that we can love Creation as it reflects God, and we can love it the way God loves it. So charity is both seeing things the way God sees it, and that way we love things the way God loves it, and yet at the same time, recognizing that simple material things will never be a direct union with God through knowledge and will. You always have to have a couple of steps between the two. And that's where it's really tricky, because on the one hand, it could seem like, oh, well... If, if the body is good and created by God, then perhaps everything that I do through the body is a way of union with God. So it doesn't matter what I do with my body, somehow God is always there. That seems to be wrong, right? That's going to be on the pig end. And then on the other hand, there's the other error, which is to say, oh, well, the, the body isn't entirely an obstacle to God. And we say, well, that's not quite true either. It's not entirely an obstacle, but it's only a step. So there's something true and something false in these two poles. That's, um, and I did emphasize more, because of the beatific vision doesn't require... The body, I was trying to emphasize ultimate happiness as opposed to how here on earth we prepare ourselves for ultimate happiness. Is
2: your speech at all a remedy against the neo-capitalist discomfort
0: with being stuck in the body in this life? Hmm. Well, I was trying to provide a paradigm both to say that. If we have a deep hylomorphic view, so I'm only implicitly adopting hylomorphism for the purposes of this talk, but I believe this is the truest understanding of the human being. If that's true, then we both avoid this notion, which you could say is platonic or it's more even Buddhist, that we're stuck in this material world, or you can even say it's Manichaean. So that's, that's a problem. They point out something true though, that the spirit realm and the material realm are different. And that's a very helpful thing to know, that these two realms are different realms, but they're somehow interacting. And then on the other hand, I'm also trying to provide a corrective to those who say that what only exists is the material realm. And somehow, it's just different arrangements of material that provide us with an approach to what's ultimately going to be our good.
2: Well, there's a, may I uh, follow up on questions that I have? That I just wanted to see what you want to do with. The since obviously in the Eucharist and in the Eucharist in particular, there's an absolute ontological immediacy of God in matter, and a material human being, I meaning Jesus is God, and there's a presence of God opaquely but really in the host, and in the species. Now, I understand, you know, there's a there's an epistemological a, a non-immediacy, or what well, faith does the kind of immediacy of touch an act of faith, such as Christ, which is God, is in contact. But, you know, okay, we don't see God in Christ, or see God in the divine essence in the world. It's still, there's something like where we're now in the material world, and in the body, in the church of we're like in the presence of God. I mean, I'm just wondering how that fit in with the things you were saying just a moment ago.
0: Yeah, so so first of all, in the in the Eucharist, Christ is not present as he's present in a place. Aquinas is very specific about this. And so we say the substance of Christ's body and blood, soul and divinity is present. So truly, when you touch the Eucharist, you are touching the substance of God. You are touching the substance of Christ's body and blood. However, the way you're touching it is different than the way you touch other bodies, right? Because when I touch physical bodies like this that have localization, then I can move them in a way that if... You see, when people desecrate the Eucharist, for instance, are they desecrating Christ's eternal body that is localized in heaven? No, of course not. So, so I want to have both of these elements again, is that it's true that we have contact with God through the incarnation, Christ in the flesh. And the Eucharist is an extension of the, Euchar- of the incarnation in time and space. However, when, when people saw Christ... Did they truly see God? Yes, they did, but they didn't see the divinity, and that's the and that's the key. And this is one of the arguments between the Orthodox and the Catholic ways of interpreting the um, Christ manifestation of Mount Tabor: is did Christ manifest divine energies that people are seeing that are now the the invisibility of God now made visible? Well. Very often we would, we would try to avoid that, Catholics, and we would say, well, no, because the divinity is always invisible on a material level. And so whatever the disciples were seeing when they were with Christ on Mount Tabor and the Transfiguration, they weren't seeing the divinity as such. Instead, they were seeing a manifestation of the divinity that's made visible. So, so again, we always have to have these two things both in mind. described in the revelation that was given to us, is that uh, the beatific vision will include also uh, physical acts, uh, or at least this is the way it's described, um, of worship, that our worship, even here on earth, pointing ahead to heaven,
2: is a worship that's embodied. Um, So the question is, is
0: that bodily worship merely a representation of the real worship that happens on a mental, spiritual level? Or is that uh, essentially part of what worship is, that we have a body and use it to worship God? Right. So when Aquinas discusses the, the virtue of religion and, and he says that worship is the act of the virtue of religion, he says, what is, what, is the, what is properly that act? And it's an act of the will to give God what is his due it's primarily an act of the will however just as in all human acts here on earth we utilize our body and it's not simply like a substance utilizing some other substance it's we might say it's the incarnation of our will and so this is where again i thought dr de talk was very helpful by saying on the one hand we don't we don't want to attribute physicality to the highest spiritual acts however it does have a union with the body First, by means of the phantasms, and then phantasms by means of the senses, which operate in respect to material objects. So so it is, we might say, an incarnation of worship, but where does worship primarily happen? In the will, manifests itself, or incarnates itself in the body. So it's both together, but there's a hierarchy to the order.
2: I feel like that's an appropriate place to finish on this. Advent, uh, First Sunday of Advent... This eve uh, where we might liberate you to go and worship God for us to stand ensuingly on on the morrow. So thank you so much for your attendance today, all your great questions and your engagement with our speakers. Please help me thank Father Ezra Sullivan and all of our speakers. Thank you.